Sugarcane and sugar beets are two of America's sweetest crops. I love it, it never gets old. And America's sugar farmers and workers work so hard to keep our kitchen stocked. In fact, 90% of the sugar Americans consume is either grown on family farms here in the US of A or refined by uh, US companies. Welcome to Groundwork. This is the podcast where we dig into all things farm policy. I'm your host, Tom Sell. Today, we are talking sugar. Here to share his experience working in one of America's sweetest industries is Jack Roney, the Director of Economics and Policy Analysis at the American Sugar Alliance. Jack has worked at the American Sugar Alliance for 25 years. Prior to that, he held positions with the Hawaiian Sugar Planners and more generally at the USDA. Uh, in some total, nearly 50 years of work on behalf of US farms, there might be no one else in the, in the United States that would understand the ins and outs of the sugar industry as well as Jack Roney does. Since Jack is retiring this month, a sad thing, after a long and stored career, we thought we would tap into his expertise one more time here on Groundwork. Jack, thank you so much for joining us uh, on our episode. Tell me, uh, just to start, why is it America's um, domestic su sugar supply chain and the farmers that work um, to support it, uh, to, to grow the sugar, why is it so important? Let's just start there. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Tom, and you've done some great stuff on groundwork. Uh, I applaud the, uh, the work that you've been doing. And uh, what we really, I think, have discovered um, in the, during the pandemic is the importance of domestic supply chains. It's been a tough lesson for us. It's been somewhat of a blow to the, uh, the, the the multinationalist uh, type of uh, approach, uh, but and you know, and global trade is good and it's important. But I think what we really have come to appreciate is the importance of domestic supply chains and uh, whether it's a, 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 a mask, the medical masks, respirators, uh, computer chips. Uh, there are uh, times when we're better off not necessarily relying on. The distant suppliers, the cheapest suppliers around. And in the case of our food supply, uh, I think that uh, overall we did extremely well in uh, uh, during, during the pandemic and we continue to do well. There were some initial shocks to the system. Uh, in the case of sugar, uh, we were, uh, I think, surprised as many people were at the sudden shift in demand. So we normally supply most of our sugar to food manufacturers and institutions in, in bulk, uh, bulk supplies, uh, in, in, in huge uh, uh, trucks and, and, uh, and uh, train, train cars and so on. But suddenly the shift was to buying sugar off the shelf. People were not going to events anymore. And what we were able to do, I was even surprised myself how quickly we were able to shift from supplying sugar in, in huge uh, uh, rail cars to supplying sugar in four pound bags. And we upped the output of our, uh, of, of our bagged uh, sugar uh, uh, production uh, by a, a huge amount, by about 52 million bags in three months. And that really uh, kept uh, everybody well supplied. No food manufacturer ever had to uh, close down for lack of sugar and grocery store shelves. For the first few days, there was a bit of hoarding, uh, but we caught up pretty quickly and, uh, and grocery store shelves have been well stocked with sugar ever since. So 
I think this was an important reminder uh, to us of the importance of having a domestic food supply and the importance of uh, sustaining uh, domestic industries uh, rather than necessarily relying on foreign supplies. That's perfectly said. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the cell household was indicative of that. Or, or my daughter, Naomi, and and wife, they were they were baking up a storm <laughs> using a lot of those four pound bags. Of course, I I uh, I loved that and, and pitched in myself. But that shift is amazing. But I, I totally agree with you, Jack. The the resilience of the American food supply industry really shone through uh, during that time. After we got through the initial hoarding phases, it was remarkable. There really were no shortages. You you said it. No no bakers, no supplier, no suppliers were held up uh, by a break in, in, in the supply chain. And that's, that's true really across most of agriculture, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think the U S uh, supply system did really well. And, you know, one of the things that I've encountered over my 47 years working in ag policy, and I've done a lot of it, a lot of my work in uh, international trade. And I noticed a tendency of, of people, uh, you know, the international trade types who would say, well, developed countries shouldn't be producing our food. That's a low tech uh, endeavor. Let's leave that to the developing countries. And I, I just disagree with that so strongly. First of all, uh, agriculture is a high tech industry. It's not low tech. Uh, the sophistication of our producers is just extraordinary. You, you know this very well. And secondly, Developed countries uh, produce their food in a sustainable way. Uh, we have uh, rules. Uh, you know, many farmers are not that crazy about some of these rules, but we have rules that uh, that defend our workers, defend the, the air quality, the water quality, uh, the soil uh, quality, and so on. And uh, you know, they insist on good wages for workers. They insist on safe food for consumers. And we achieve all that, and we do it extremely well. And we do it sustainably. So, you know, I think one of the, the things that I have felt very strongly about throughout my career is uh, my pride at defending developed country farmers. Uh, we do have a critical role to play uh, in uh, the global supply chain. And I think that that uh, became all the more apparent during this pandemic. I love it, Jack. And you're so right. I mean, realistically, our, our, our soil health, our air quality, our water quality in the United States is in fact healthier than most. But from an agricultural standpoint, when you put that across an efficiency matrix, you know, the, the pounds of sugar we're producing, the, the pounds of protein we're producing in all segments of agriculture uh, and the environmental footprint it takes to, to do that in the sustainable way that we're doing it is truly top of the class. It's, it's the model for the rest of the world that we need to uh, replicate and, and Americans are incredibly generous in trying to teach and and spread that knowledge and know-how uh, across the world. It's a beautiful thing, but I, I am absolutely one hundred percent with you. We we need to cultivate the, the 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 scientific lab and the great productive mechanisms in the United States need to be really held up and protected and 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 honored for the role that they're going to play. Uh, in uh, for future generations of the United States and the and this world. So I'm I'm curious. You've you've been in total in agriculture for you know some 50 years. What are I and I, I love that you focused on this particular 
issue that just comes up repeatedly. But what are some of the other great accomplishments uh, that you would that you would recall from your 50 year career? Well, I guess there's that uh, that expression of dog years, uh, <laughs> and you know, measuring one's accomplishments uh, or one's life in dog years. I think the analogy for that uh, for us in ag policy is farm bills. How many farm bills have you done? <laughs> so I've been around for nine of them, uh, three when I was at USDA and six with sugar. And uh, I think that I am you know, proud of those that we have sustained these farm bills, even as in Congress, just in the time that I've been involved in this, uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer rural districts uh, fewer districts that uh, where the predominant uh, uh, business is, is farming. Uh, it, we're seeing ag committees now being populated with urban folks who are interested in uh, in food stamps and, and nutrition programs, and rightly so. Uh, so there's been quite a shift. So it has always been a struggle uh, to get farm bills through. And one of the things that I think I may have taken for granted once, but now uh, I do less so is the bipartisanship of getting farm bills passed. It's just been become, you know, just qu quite frankly depressing, uh, the lack of, of uh, bipartisanship in, uh, in government in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. Uh, but this is an area that we've been able to, uh, to really uh, uh, reach across the aisle, both aisles, and, and, uh, and get a lot of support for American farmers. Uh, so I'm very proud of that and uh, get a little parochial here. I'm very proud of the fact that we've sustained a sugar policy uh, that has operated zero cost to taxpayers uh, through uh, these many farm bills um, you know, dating back to the early 1980s. And uh, I'm particularly proud of that because I, you know, I think our farmers, our sugar farmers are uh, some of the best in the world at what they do. Uh, they're responsible, they're sustainable and they sustain a program that operates at zero cost to taxpayers. And uh, you know, as we just saw recently in the pandemic, they do a tremendous job under tough circumstances of keeping plenty of sugar on the grocery store shelves and, and uh, getting sugar to food manufacturers. So uh, that has been a great pride to me. And I think just one more thought, Tom, is that I've been at this long enough that I've had the incredible gratification of seeing um, my farmers pass their farms along to their sons and daughters. I'm working now with the sons and daughters of farmers I worked with earlier in my career. And some grandchildren are coming along now uh, who are uh, getting into the program. And I, I think when I describe what I do to people outside of agriculture, what I say, what it really comes down to is that I'm trying to help our farmers be able to pass their farms along to their sons and daughters. And I've been at this long enough and we've had enough success in sugar that I've seen this happen many times. And I think that's the most gratifying aspect of the work that I've done. That's a beautiful thought, Jack. I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned it. You've done incredible work for the sugar industry. I would also say as one working in the very frustrating political environment, you are, you are good salt and light in, in the political process as well. It is, it's, you know, our system is designed for conflict. But boy, it is discouraging right now. There just seems like we focus more on the conflict and less on the solutions. You have been one of the very positive agents uh, within Washington, D.C., who has cultivated goodwill and, and bipartisan solutions, and you deserve a lot of credit for that. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, at ASA, at the American Sugar Alliance, you've spent 
decades tracking foreign sugar subsidies in particular and the damage they've caused to the global sugar market, arguably one of the most distorted uh, markets uh, in our world. So why are foreign sugar subsidies so damaging? Just help our listeners understand uh, the politics of sugar a bit. Well, when I brag about my farmers being so efficient, uh, being among the lowest cost producers in the world, being so good at what they do, then people say to me, well, if you're so good, why do you need a sugar policy? Well, the answer is complicated, but the answer is, as you just said, that the world sugar market is the, uh, mathematically speaking, is the most uh, distorted market in the world in terms of the volatility and the disconnect with the cost of producing sugar. And it, that's a little hard for people to understand, but one of the examples I tried to provide is that over the last 30 years, the world average cost of producing sugar has been about 20 cents per pound. So you would think, well, I guess the world price is about 20 cents per pound or higher, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, the world price is average 13 cents per pound. Yeah. So you scratch your head and think, well, how in the world could we have a global sugar industry if the price that they're getting for their product is barely half the cost of production? And the answer is that only a small amount of sugar, maybe 20, 25% of the sugar produced every year is sold at that 13 cent price. Right. The rest is sold within the country where it's produced uh, at prices that are much higher, at prices at which these uh, farmers can actually survive. So countries around the world recognize the dump nature of the world market. We're not the only ones who are onto this. And so they come up with ways to defend to, uh, their, their farmers, to buffer them uh, from the vagaries of that, uh, of that uh, world dump market price. And they sustain much higher prices. Now, one of the ways that they sustain these uh, higher prices in their country is if they produce too much, they dump it on the world market. They, they create a, 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 a shortage or a balance in their, in their market by essentially dumping their problem on the world market. And that's fine for countries that don't have sugar producing industries, they get all this cheap sugar. But for any country that has uh, sugar cane or sugar beet producers, they've got to have some buffer to that. And uh, so that is really, uh, I think in, in a nutshell, why we need to have this sugar policy, why every country that has sugar producers needs to buffer them from this world market in some way. Yeah, that's so important. And, and, and everyone wants to protect, or those with sugar uh, producers want to protect that. One, uh, you know, maybe there's just some elements of, of, of pride, but, but also it is a valuable crop, is it not? I mean, the, the economic footprint from the ground up from the farms through the, the processing system. And this is a, a truly valuable crop among crops. Wouldn't that be right, Jack? When you talk about the value of this crop too, there is a political value. An example would be India, where they have literally millions of small sugarcane growers with a lot of political clout. Many of us have seen the news of farmer riots in India over the last couple of months. And so the Indian government to keep these sugarcane farmers happy, have uh, given them generous uh, prices. Uh, They've uh, bailed them out time after time, including sugar millers. And India had been a net importer of sugar. Now they're suddenly a net exporter of sugar. And so they are, so what they're doing with their surplus, uh, they're dumping it on the world market with export subsidies that we thought were illegal in the WTO, the World Trade Organization, but they're going ahead with it anyway. Uh, They're being sued at the WTO for doing that. But meanwhile, they're dumping five or six million tons of sugar on the world market each year, 
driving that price down for remaining sugar farmers around the world. Yeah, that's a great current example. And it sets up this next question perfectly. So uh, back in the U.S. Congress, Representative Kat Kemak and, uh, and Dan Kildee recently introduced a bill called Zero for Zero. Jack, could you explain to our listeners what the goal of this bill is, how it'll help America's sugar growers, kind of the whole zero for zero uh, mantra of U.S. sugar? Yeah, that, I, thank you for asking about that, Tom. That's a very important aspect of our policy. And, uh, and when we talk about uh, you know, communicating to Congress on both sides of the aisle, uh, this is an argument that is very basic and, and very effective. And that is that because we are efficient, by world standards, uh, we are willing to go without a U.S. sugar policy when foreign countries give up their government programs. Uh, and when that happens, that world price that I mentioned that's been hovering around 13 cents will rise to reflect the cost of producing sugar because the less efficient producers will drop out and we can survive at that price. So the zero for zero, I think the beauty of it is that it it, it kind of puts our money where our mouths are. We say, we will give up uh, U.S. sugar policy when foreign countries give up theirs. And the way for that to happen is the WTO, the World Trade Organization, because that's the forum where you have every country at the table and every program on the table. And it's in that context that we could potentially see some real uh, movement toward uh, a level playing field in sugar. And that's what this is all about. You know, we hear about that uh, so much, uh, I think, uh, uh, throughout uh, agriculture, throughout our industries, uh, to look for a level playing field that uh, our producers, whether they're farmers or manufacturers, can compete with any foreign farmers or manufacturers on a level playing field, which is when governments come in and tilt the playing field, uh, that it's really uh, unfair. So that's what Zero for Zero is all about. Uh, moving toward a level playing field uh, in, um, in in the world sugar industry. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, and and yeah, if it's a level playing field, the American farmers will compete against anyone and compete well. It's just we don't want to compete against foreign governments leveraging their power uh, against the U.S. sugar producers or, or producers of, of other kinds. Gosh, I could go on for for. <laughs> hours with you, as you know, I just love hearing your wisdom, but I do want to look just more on a personal level. I, I got to ask, what, what are your plans for retirement? I, I can't imagine you doing anything else, quite honestly, uh, but I know you have a, have a, have a good family and, and social life as well, but, but tell us a little bit about what you plan to do and, and then we'll circle back. Well, Tom, it's uh, sugar. There's never been a dull moment in sugar. And I think I may have pictured on my final year making plans for post-retirement. I haven't had time. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's been so busy. Uh, right up, uh, right up to the end. But I, I do look forward to, uh, uh, I think, doing some more, uh, more reading and, and some more writing. Uh, I look forward to uh, taking a lot of continuing education classes in in art and music and history. And uh, uh, I may get into master's swimming. I'll get back into that now. But I'm 70. Maybe I can make a killing in the 70 to 75 age group. <laughs> and uh, and then the other, but the other, more seriously, the uh, uh, my church is uh, uh, my parish has a has a great program for uh, with regard to uh, food insecurity, and I yeah. think that that's uh, something that I I look forward to. I've I've wanted to do so much more in that. I just haven't had the time, so I'm not going to try to devote some time to that. So I'll, in that sense, I'll be I'll be staying uh, connected to 
food and agriculture. I hope I hope I can make a contribution there. I love it. Sounds like you're going to give back tremendously. Or, or I guess our lot in life is always uh, toil and work and try and try and give back in ways that we can. Jack, you you have so many great talents. Your work ethic is exceptional, and this world is a better place for you. I know that. It's been an incredible pleasure talking with you today, Jack. Uh, and say with certainty, we're all going to miss you. Certainly wishing you the best of luck in your retirement. That's going to do it for this episode of Groundwork. I'm Tom Sell. 